Good morning, people. So good with me to be with you. I can't even talk today. It's so crazy. I'm so excited. I'm pent up with energy. All right. Hey, great to be with you this morning. Before we get underway, I want to give you a real quick encouragement. I had so many things in my brain. I couldn't decide what to pick first. But uh, as Cassie was just talking about, tomorrow night is the start of this new thing we're doing called Monday Night Live. Uh, which for the next three weeks is going to be Pastor Scott doing some fundamentals of the faith. And then after that, I'm going to do a membership class. Then after that, I'm going to teach a class on just kind of basic Christian disciplines and how we can be more connected and committed to Christ, that kind of thing. And the reason we're doing Monday Night Live is because over the last couple of years of COVID, uh, you know, we all sort of got out of rhythm a little bit. We, you know, maybe didn't have the normal kind of scheduled things. And so this is kind of a way to coach us back into having this one night of the week that we're setting aside maybe for some different things. So if you've not signed up for that fundamentals class, there's still space. You can always join at any time. That's going to be great. Or the new members class is coming up in about a month. Or this disciplines class is going to come up after that. But we'd love to see people there for these Monday nights because, again, it's just designed to help us get back into that space and that rhythm of having a little extra additive for our spiritual development in our lives. And so just want you to know about that. Beyond that, I want to take a moment here to pray for us today as we continue our series on Schooled and uh, just have kind of the Holy Spirit work in us, open up our heart a little bit and see what he has for us today. So let's go ahead and do that together. Jesus, I, I thank you so much that you have brought together this community of faith and you've brought it together in such a way that you've given it a heart and a passion uh, on how to live out our faith, how to do it in the tone that you've given us uh, and how to do it in this community. And, and from that, we just wanna honor you in that. It's, it's not about how cool we can be, how well known we can be. It's about how faithful we can be to you. And so help us to know how to do that, to do that well, to do that authentically, to do that from the space of grace that we can make much of your grace and from that others can have that kind of contact with the power of your grace as well. And so uh, we ask for your Holy Spirit to really open us up as individuals today, guide us in what it is you want us to learn and to know so that we might grow and again, we can represent you well. And so, Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in your good and kind name. Amen. All right, Schooled. That is the name of our three-week series. The kids have gone back to school, so we as a church are going back to school as well. And, and the motive for this is a couple of things, right? And so the heart behind the series is to capture the vision, the values, and the vibe of Redemption Church because, for one, we try to do this every couple of years to just be reminded of what's important to us uniquely or distinctly as a church. Because listen, there's great churches in the valley. There's great churches in the overall Seattle area. And, and after a while, they can all kind of sound the same on paper if we're not really conscientious about trying to, to define what God has laid on our heart and make that as specific as we can so that when people come in contact with us, they go, oh, I see what you're about, right? So that's part of the heart behind doing this series. And then the other reason is that we know that we as a church are on the precipice of seeing our new hub built downtown really over this next year, a little more than a year, whatever it is, that's going to come into play. And all the more based on that, we want to know kind of specifically what's critical to our, our mission, 
so that we leverage that space well. That is not really the church. We are the church, and that will be our toolbox to being the church to our community. And so from that, we want to know, like, hey, what's important? What makes us count? What makes us tick? What makes us drive forward as a community of faith, right? And, and, and for me, this is also kind of important because over the years, as redemption has grown and developed, I've seen the importance of trying to know exactly how we can define what is mission critical. Because if you were to be generic about it and say, well, what kind of a church is Redemption Church? We would say, well, we are a conservative, evangelical, non-denominational congregation. Five simple words, right? But for a lot of people, are like, no, those aren't simple because that's like 20 syllables, bro, and all of that. What does all of that mean? And I get it. Uh, because some of those words, it isn't really that descriptive. Or some of those words, conservative, evangelical, non-denominational congregation— they don't quite represent or maybe they can be misunderstood in relationship to what we really mean. For example, in the modern nomenclature, conservative and evangelical has been more politicized than its original roots of being theological. So when people hear those words, they're like, oh, so you're making a political statement as a church. I'm like, no, we're not making a political statement. We're make, making a statement about how we approach the Bible and how we see God and how we understand our orthodoxy. And that's what all of that's meant to communicate, but it can get a little confusing. And so what the heart of this is all about then is saying we want to move kind of our King James Version speak into new living translation stuff, right? So that from this series, we go, oh, that's what we're about. And that's how we can communicate what we're about to other people. So last week in this whole thing, we learned our mission statement. And our mission statement is very simple. It's helping people believe life is better with Jesus. That's it. That is the mission. That is the statement. And, and all of that we saw had value to it. Helping means we're going to be here to coach you. It's the carrot more than the stick. We want to help everybody go along on this path. And we want them to really believe in their bones, with their actions, with their affections and their attitudes, that doing life in Jesus' way will always turn out to be better. It's better for our own lives, and it's better for the lives of the people around us. Because when you're in the space of doing life the way Jesus did life, you're wanting to invest your life to make others' lives better as well, because that's the heart of God coming into the world to do these things. And so for us, this is incredibly important. And it's also important because I think it authentically then shows who Jesus really is to the world around us. And more than ever, I think that is incredibly important. To give an authentic presentation of the life and purpose and message of Jesus, not simply in words, but in actions and in lifestyle. So we want to be helping people believe that life is better with Jesus, both as a church and for all of us as individuals. But to accomplish this why, we focus on our how, right? How do we accomplish those goals? How do we make that happen? And this has everything to do with how we act, right? The actions that we have and some of the attitudes we have within those actions. And so remember last week I was talking about a couple of years ago, the staff all got away and we tried to unpack what are our authentic attributes as a church. Well, from that, we came up with seven things. Now we could have had more than seven, but seven seems to be like God's number, right? He's like, I dig seven. So we're like, we dig seven too. So we came up with these seven functions, seven ways that we want to behave and think as a congregation of faith. 
The other thing about these seven things is we could have maybe said them in bigger ways, more sophisticated ways, but, but what we knew is that we wanted them to be memorable. And so we wanted them to say a lot with a little. We wanted them to, when they were said, a person would instantly know like, oh, I see what you're saying there. I, I, I see where you're going with that. So that was the heart behind kind of putting all of this together in a simplified fashion. We didn't want complexity. We, we wanted something where these could be like ideas that are in your back pocket. So that when somebody maybe says to you like, hey, I'm thinking about checking out your church. Well, like, what's it all about? What's important to them? If you, if you just knew like two of the seven statements or three or four, wow, that's pushing it, but I know. If you knew like four of those, you could say, well, we're like this and like this and like this. People could go like, oh, I totally get the vibe of your church just by you saying those things. That was the heart behind that whole concept. And so we put it together a little bit like a fill in the blank. We, and then we just like, okay, what's the blank? What would we put in there to help people understand us. And for me, this was really important. Like I shared last week, things started off kind of complicated for us as far as all of our wording and language and all the different value points we had. And so now it was like, no, we want to really just distill this down to the essence of what's important to us so people can get it with minimal effort involved. And so from this, these seven things were born. And while these don't come in any particular order, because all seven are important, I'll be just transparent with you. The very first one, man, this one gets me excited. This is the one that for me is kind of number one on the spectrum of everything. And so when somebody says, hey, tell us about your church, Matt. What's redemption all about? The first thing that I always will share with them is we seek to be like Jesus. We seek to be like Jesus. We don't seek to be like religion. We don't seek to be like a bunch of rule keepers. Weirdly enough, I would say my heart isn't even seeking to be like Christians. I'm seeking to be like Christ. That is the objective. That's the goal. That's the heart of us as a church. Because for me personally, I am riveted. I am riveted by the life of Jesus. I just am. Like, you know, man, I've shared this before. I struggle with doubt sometimes. I have questions that I wrestle with. But you know the thing I don't question at all? It's who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and how he lived. That drives my life. That's what I want to be. Now, I don't measure up. I'm not always hitting it right. But I look at his upside-down, backwards nature. I look at how the broken people, the hurting people, the people that were discarded by culture, how they love to be with him. I look at how he ticked off religion sometimes because they thought they were better than these people. And I go, man, there's something about this guy that just breaks all the molds. And to me, I go, I think that's the way the world is healed. I think when people take up the mantle of saying, I'm going to seek to be like Jesus in my home, at work, when I volunteer in the neighborhood or at school, when I'm just going about town, I'm on the I-5, when I'm at Safeway, Costco, wherever, I'm seeking to be like Jesus. I think that is the thing that transforms the environment. Now, based on this, if we're going to seek to be like Jesus— it means we can't just simply draw off of whatever. We want to actually analyze what mattered to him. Do I have to go like, oh, okay, you, you had priorities, Jesus. So if I can learn your priorities, these can become my priorities, and I can be more like you. And so to look at something that I think highlights the priorities of Jesus, I want to return us back to a little patch of earth we were looking at last week in the Gospel of John. 
So the fourth piece of literature in the New Testament, the very first chapter opens up with these big, bold declarations that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? And from that, what it's kind of preparing us for is that Jesus is more than just like a good teacher, a prophet, a powerful dude. No, he's God. That's the point. Jesus is God. That's what it sets us up for. But then our minds are blown when we get to verse 14 of that chapter, when it says, and the word who was with God and is God became human and made his home among us. So he's like, I'm gonna move into your neighborhood. I'm gonna set up a dojo down from your house and I'm gonna be chilling with you. That's the heart of that section. And as he comes to be our neighbor, what's he come with? What's he move into the neighborhood with? It says he was full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, I'm going to warn you, we're going to come back to this again in a minute for that little set of statements right there. But I want to take your attention kind of back to the beginning of this. If we're trying to learn how to be like Jesus, the first thing it talks about is his glory. And glory is sometimes like a fancy worship word. Like we just go, glory, it means shiny thing or what, you know. Like what does it mean? Glory means the weight of one's character. The weight of one's character. So when we look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we take three years to go through the gospel of Luke. What we're looking at is the weight of Jesus' character. So what you see him do is who he is. That's why it says the fullness of this glory. What that means is the deepest essence of his person was on display for us. Here, here's what's cool to me about this, dude. This is just a freebie because you showed up and the tickets are free right now. So, you know, but, but recently I had this epiphany where I used to always say like, you know, um, Jesus is just like God. Jesus is the image of God. And, and I just flipped that and it just kind of was this aha moment where I'm like, did you know that God is just like Jesus? Because Jesus is God? In other words, I think sometimes we go, like, God the Father is like bad cop, and Jesus is good cop, right? Like, God in the Old Testament, but Jesus, man, he's like warm and fuzzy, and you can approach him and everything else. And I realized that, no, here's the thing. God is just like Jesus. In the Old Testament, they had a murky understanding of God. God was cloaked and concealed, and you couldn't look upon God, and you couldn't approach anything near God if you didn't have all this purity in place and all these rules kept. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, and you can look him straight in the face, and the most sinful people can touch him, and he welcomes them. And then I realize, man, when I look at Jesus, now I really understand God. And so from that, what I see is man, there is a weight of his character and there is a fullness that is displayed and what he loves, what he values is grace and truth. You ask him what's important to him and he says, grace is important to me and truth is important to me. So if I'm seeking to be like Jesus, I suddenly know that, oh, these two concepts are huge. Grace and truth need to define me and us if we are going to be a people who are seeking to be like Jesus. See, this is important because even last week we learned in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 that if anyone says they live in God should live just as Jesus lived. So again, the goal is not to seek to be religious or even Christian. 
but Christ-like, like Jesus. Because if we say we live in God, we're going to live just as Jesus lived. And Jesus himself taught in the Gospel of Luke. He says, you know what? Really good teachers, right, teach in such a way that eventually their students are just like their teacher. A student doesn't surpass their teacher, but a student would become just like the teacher. And so we want to be exhaustive students of the teacher, we want to be real students of grace and truth. And those principles, we don't want to just simply hold to those like academic ideas. I worry about that sometimes, especially being a theologian, that we take grace and we break it down into all this theological stuff, and we take truth and we break it down into all this theological stuff. And yet what Jesus did is he so simplified the practice of that to remind us that what's most important is not that I academically can break those words down, but rather that I can practically live those words out. That's what it means to seek to be like Jesus. To really put those things in play. Not just kind of agree with, assent to, communicate. No, to play them out. In fact, my wife, years ago, had this great statement. And the statement is, it's always easier to speak on Jesus' behalf than to live on behalf of Jesus. It's always easier to speak on his behalf than to live, or to speak on his behalf rather than to live on behalf of him. And, and, and it always has stuck with me because I, I see that. It's very easy in the name of Jesus to want to lecture our world. It's very easy in the name of Jesus to want to condemn our world. It's very easy in the name of Jesus to want to judge our world. You know what's really tough to do is to act like Jesus toward our world. That's hard. And that's why I always want this loving pressure on us as a church, to say, wait, man, I'm not trying to be that. I, I want to be like Jesus to my world. I want to build bridges to my world more than build roads away from them, right? Because that's what he calls us to do. One of the things that's broken my heart over the last few years is people that I care about, people that I love, who have moved away, and I don't mind that people move away because everybody can be called to different things, but when the motive was, I'm so sick of these liberal people in Seattle and Washington, I just gotta move. I'm just sick of them. I gotta build a road away from these neighbors that I don't wanna be near anymore. And it just broke my heart because I'm like, man, again, if you're moving to go in your family, you're moving for a job, you're moving for other, great. But if the attitude is, I just can't stand 60% of my neighbors. I need to go find a place where my neighbors are all like me and I like my neighbors. I go, man, I don't think that's seeking to be like Jesus. There can be a lot of good motivations. But I look at Jesus and I go, man, he became our neighbor when we were a mess. He said, I'm going to move into their neighborhood even though they reject me. I go, man, that's seeking to be like Jesus. I think much of this is captured in the top shelf command. What's the top shelf command? Well, of all of the commands, the biggest is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Do this, he says, and you will live. Life is better with Jesus. And when we said life is better with Jesus, we said life is better with Jesus when you live life like Jesus lived it. And here he's kind of letting us know this is the big idea. You're going to have an abundant life, a full life, a complete life if you lean into the hard thing of loving God and loving neighbor. This is grace and truth in action, right? And, and here's what I love about this command. It's a command of tension, and it's a command of tension because here's what we tend to do as human beings. I do this. I'm awesome at this. And it's a failure of mine. I love to be binary. 
In other words, I love to take a problem and say it's either zero or one. It's on or it's off. It's good, bad, right, wrong. And I want to just pick a side. And then Jesus rolls in and says, this is the most important thing. And it's a command of tension because it says you're to love God and love neighbors, right? In a certain sort of way, with a certain sort of passion. And both must be loved. To not love both fails in the command. And that's hard because what we tend to do is say, well, some of these people that I'm supposed to love, uh, they're, they're hateful of Christians, they're hateful of God, they live messy lives, immoral lives, you know, lives that are deserving God's judgment, and, and therefore, if I'm going to really love God, I've got to stand against them. If I'm going to love God, I've got to critique them and criticize them and judge them to show that I really love God. And, and what God does with that is he says, well, here's the problem. Uh, I get to be judged, but you don't. And I've just told you to love them and love me. And you got to work that out. That's grace and truth in action. In 1 John chapter 4, John goes a step further and says, how can you say you love a God that you can't see if you don't love the people you can see? What I think God is getting at is the way you really show you love me is you do the hard thing of loving others, especially the unlovelies, the ones that don't love you, the ones that maybe are against you. Because here's the thing, in every one of these people over here, you ready for this? Every one of them bears the image of God. Every one of them. You pick the worst person you can imagine, and deeply embedded in that person is the image of the one you are trying to love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God's like, the way you love me is you love them, and when you love them, you're loving me too because I reside in them in this deep, profound way. And so to seek to be like Jesus is to seek to be like this. What I love about this is this is also the greatest apologetic, or it's the greatest way we, we prove how, how powerful our God is and how much he's touched our lives. Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, and we're like, another one? It's already 612, now we're moving to 613. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and if you have like an, uh, any kind of Bible that you can write in, I want you to put an underline into this, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you can use that as the benchmark. In other words, you say, well, to the degree I think God loves me is how I'm supposed to love other people. This is going to be the new command. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They don't know we are his disciples by how we vote, the bumper sticker on our car, or what would Jesus do bracelet, what we post on social media, what they chiefly know, what chiefly proves the reality of Jesus is that we love one another. That we love the lovely, we love the unlovely, we love the hater, we love the persecutor, we love them. Now, sometimes I, I, I go through this passage and I get this retort from people. It says, no, it says we love one another, Matt. It doesn't mean we have to love everybody. We just have to love fellow Christians. To which my thing is, great, let's start there. I'm all in, man. I'm all in. I love that. I love that. Because in my world, there are many people I dearly love that have walked away from the faith, not because they felt too loved, but because they felt judged, they felt shunned, they felt ridiculed, they felt gossiped about, they felt wounded. And, and so, if we just shrunk into that, that'd be great. I think that would prove a ton to the world. But when we read through 1 John, we see it's more than just fellow Christians. When we read through Jesus, we see that it's even our enemies. 
And so seeking to be like Jesus says, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna pursue this idea of touching the world in grace and truth. Now to kind of go a step further, we spent a lot of time on that one, but we're gonna start to break this down a little bit with grace and truth. This leads to the second thing that's important to us as a church. We seek to err on the side of grace. Err on the side of grace. In other words, if we have a choice between erring on law or erring on grace, we'll err on grace. And some people go, well, maybe you should err on the law more. Well, what we saw and we'll see again is the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus. And so if we're gonna make a mistake, I'd rather make a mistake on the side of grace. So, so in this then, what, what this all starts to look like when people say, what's Redemption Church all about? I say, well, we seek to be like Jesus, we err on the side of grace. And, and I'll tell you another thing that why this is important to me. Uh, this is another freebie, right? But, but if you look at the different world religions, they would break into three basic ideological categories. So one set of the category would say the, the key to your, your kind of salvation is enlightenment. So like Buddhism is a good example of this where the idea is, is if you can be so enlightened, you let go of all passion you don't fear pain, you don't crave pleasure, you just become neutral, you transcend all of that sense of desire, that's where you're going to reach nirvana. So in that system, if you work really, really hard to forgo pleasure and pain and not care about warding off or seeking out, you're going to be solid. That's one kind of religious principle. The other kind is uh, what you do. Not so much what you earn, but kind of even what you prove to show that you're really in the system, right? So this might be Judaism or Islam, where it's like you're doing all these good works to show you're a person of that pledge, that covenant, that promise. You're going to hold to those laws. And in that sense, you are proving by what you do that you are really committed, and there's this sense of then maybe earning attached to that or securing or maintaining in some capacity, but then Christianity rolled in with this wackadoodle notion that it's not your enlightenment and it's not your ability and it's not how you earn or anything else. It's the grace of God that rescues you apart from what you do. That the very brand of our faith is grace. Now, in that, what I find tragic sometimes is how often that's not how we're defined. We're sometimes defined by, well, you have to have a certain enlightenment or you have to have a certain level of execution. And many people, again, have been hurt by almost the absence of grace. It's weird that you have a brand of grace, but we don't always display the grace of our brand. And yet grace is critical, right? Not just as a theological idea, but as a practical application. I don't want to just say, I believe in grace, but I don't show it. I believe in grace, but I don't display it. I go back to Jesus in John chapter one. It says, from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to talk about truth in a minute, so let's not divorce that from this idea of grace. But notice there, it says grace, 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 and truth. Grace comes up three times. It's like a Trinitarian grace in the section to drive home the point. Grace upon grace, oozing with grace, dripping with grace, filled with grace, moved by grace, just completely motivated by grace. Like that's what Jesus comes to accomplish. Grace is potent. Grace is powerful. And so in that, we want to lean on the side of grace. Now, some people go, but hey, man, you preach too much grace, people will abuse it. Yeah, they will. That's the nature of grace. Newsflash, we all abuse it every day. 
We do. This idea that somehow we're operating above grace as human beings is, is silly. We don't operate, I don't, I don't like, all, grace gets me to a point of really great self-discipline and now I just boost away from grace. Now, every day I, I, I need grace for the countless sins that I'm not even aware of. I have no clue how many places I'm wrong, how many places I'm flawed, how many places I'm blind. And then there's the stuff I realize, right? And that's why grace is so powerful. But grace isn't just a forgiving agent. This idea of erring on the side of grace isn't just, so grace forgives us and then we maintain from there. Grace gets me in the door and then it's all my works from there. That's not how this works. In fact, a great passage in Titus says this in Titus chapter two. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all of our wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. That started off, and it didn't say, for the law of God has appeared, bringing salvation. It didn't say, for the rules of God has appeared, bringing salvation. It said, for the grace of God has appeared. But the grace of God then becomes a mobilizing agent to say no to these things, to say yes to these things, and to be eager. See, that motivates me more. Like, think about this minute for a minute, right? So, kind of an application. We all live in King County, and King County has plenty of laws. Are you motivated by the laws of King County to celebrate, be joyous, and eager to do what's good? No, they just make you fearful so you don't do bad, right? That's kind of what law does. Law is just a threat. It says if you cross this and it will be negative for others, you will be penalized. Laws don't motivate us to be awesome people. Laws just motivate us to not be bad people. But grace, grace is something altogether different. I look at grace like a carrot, right? More than a stick, Grace makes, makes me go, man, I'm so grateful for what God has done. I'm grateful for the power that he gives. I'm grateful for the life that he's imparted. I'm grateful for the goal that is before me. And from that, I want to do these things. I want to say no to this and yes to that and be eager because, man, I'm so motivated by something greater than myself. That is what it means to err on the side of grace too. Grace is not just about get you out of jail free, though that's exactly what it does. But grace is also about stimulating you. Right? To be like, man, I, I, want, I want to just, I want to live in gratitude for what he has shown to me. That's why we're going to err on the side of grace. We're going to err on the side of grace in our disposition, and we're going to err on the side of grace and help people grow even. Right? I'm just not a stick guy. You know, I just don't like to use the stick on people. That's just not my heart. Sometimes I slip into that, but that's not my heart. I'd rather woo than threaten or force or demand. Now, what is also true to what's important to us is not just grace, but truth. And in the realm of truth, what this means is we take the Bible seriously. Right? That's kind of this third identity marker for us as a people. If grace and truth means truth also, truth is how we see the book. But I want to be, again, clear about what I'm getting at here. Um, this isn't the end all. Remember, I've shared with you before that there was a time in my life where this was God, right? So God was finite. He was wrapped in leather. 
He had all the answers. And I was like this Bible-believing deist. Like God gave us a book and then he departed. And now this was the great arbitrator of all things. And it wasn't about God, it was about the book. Uh, that's not what I want us to do. I want us to say the book is a portal to knowing God. The book is a portal to a deep life of wisdom and relationship, but we don't want to just be, it's all about the book. I study the book, memorize the book, learn the book, and it stops at the book. That's not the whole thing. It's the book takes us to a deeper place, right? It builds in us wisdom. This is why even in part, I, I see this differential between law through Moses, truth through Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the truth. And part of it means when we approach this book, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us in how we understand it, we apply it, we see it, we live it, right? Jesus gives the Holy Spirit as the helper to help those things play out in our lives. And so with this idea of truth, it's understanding the motive, right? Sometimes the motive can just be the book, and I'm saying it has to be the Lord behind the book. But we're going to take it seriously because of that. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. It comes from his essence, comes from within his person, and it's breathed out, and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, of all the stuff that was said here, here's the thing I, I, I want to really drive home. It says it's useful. In other words, it's not simply holy or sacred or ancient, though all of that is true. But what I love here is that it's useful. It's useful to teach, to correct, and to outfit. It's God's coaching guide. It's not meant to be something that we just put under glass in a museum and say it's kind of almost untouchable. No, it's meant to be utilitarian. It's meant to be well-worn, right? well like read well, worked through, well smashed, if you use our smash Bible concept, for the purpose of helping us do what is good, helping us to avoid what is wrong, imparting to us a wisdom for life, a grid by which we operate so that we might honor God in rich and real ways. And what this means in taking it seriously is not simply academically taking it seriously, but taking it seriously by letting it reform our lives. Right? Because the... the the temptation again, especially, especially I think in the Western context where our pressures are light in comparison to other places where the pressures are really, really, really terrible in different ways, I think sometimes we can just become sort of these students of, these expositors, but we're not letting it do the life transformation of letting us look a lot like Jesus, but that's what we want it to do because it is useful, so we want to use it. Now, because we're using it and it's useful, we want to take it seriously, as it says, and from this, we want to take seriously what it prescribes to our lives. This leads to the next thing that's important for us as a church. We believe that life is best lived with others. In other words, Jesus didn't say, I came into the world to save you as an individual, and then you and I are just going to do this thing, just the two of us forever. No, the first thing he does is he saves us out of our kind of our lostness and into not only salvation, but into a community that's saved. This is why the church is a big deal to Jesus when people are like, man, I don't need a church. I just need God and my fishing boat and a Sunday morning. Well, your fishing boat is cool and with God is cool and that's all cool, but we're meant to be in community. We can't grow to our full potential if we're not. What this means is that each and every one of us is like a puzzle piece. 
We have a protrusion, an indentation. We have things that we can offer and things that we need in a community of faith. Especially the things you think you don't need is probably what you do need to be involved in a community of faith. Which means that all of us are dependent upon others and all of us are depended on by others in this community. In fact, Paul gets into it in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, These are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, that's one of me. The teachers, that's also one of me. But their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of the Son of God that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Here's what I dig about this. What it doesn't say is that Matt's a builder. I'm not a builder. I'm an equipper, right? But it equips all of us, including myself, and Scott's an equipper, and Dana's an equipper. We have all these different equippers in our church, but they're all equipping, but the equipping is to make us all builders, so we all together are building, right? And we're building one another up in this process. And when you continue through this passage, you see that the building is designed to insulate and stimulate our spiritual growth. Verse 14, when this happens, and we're all picking up a hammer and swinging— for one another here in a good way. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced by people who try to trick us with lies that are clever and sound like the truth. It'll insulate us. But instead, it will stimulate us and we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. See, what, what that little section tells me there is that there are some parts of our church that are downloadable content. So right now, we record, we post, everything else. This is downloadable. The message is downloadable. You know what's not downloadable? What happens out here in the commons afterward or before? What happens out here, like in the good weather, where I see the parents out here with the kids and the parents are talking with one another, and in and, and, and that there's conversations that are so needed. I think about last week when somebody grabbed my wife and said, can you just pray with me right now? And so they prayed together. That's not downloadable. That has to happen because life is best lived with others. Or in our regroups, or Bible studies, or classes, or whatever enclaves you can find. Man, we need one another in this journey. And that's Paul's point in this whole thing. And what it takes is every single one of us to be connected. Verse 16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Right? Love is kind of this ultimate objective, but it all means that we're together doing it, depended upon, depending on others. That's the heart. What's kind of tacked in close to this is the next point. As a church, we encourage that everybody sweeps. Everybody sweeps. The idea here is that everybody serves. And why is that important? Well, there's this, I think, funny scene where Jesus is running with his fellas and they're moving toward a particular town and he's a little ahead and they're all talking. And they're all talking about which one is the coolest, which one's the best, which one's crushing it, you know? Which, here's the newsflash. If you're rolling with Jesus, none of you are crushing it, right? You're not awesome in comparison to who you're rolling with. But they have that debate. And so they finally roll into town. They go into a house, and Jesus asks them, he goes, well, what were you discussing on the way? And it says, but they kept silent. That's a good move, right? 
Like, honestly, it's like, you jack wagons, what are you going to, well, we were arguing about who's most awesome. Like, that's just really dumb. So they stay quiet, right? But he knew that they'd been arguing about which one was the greatest. And so he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. In other words, what he says is, you want to know what it means to be really, really great? Grab a broom. Don't grab the best seat at the table. Grab a broom. Right? Grabbing a broom is kingdom awesome. Taking your skill set, your abilities, your gifting, and pouring it into others, that's kingdom awesome. In fact, Peter says it this way, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. When we do this, we're displaying grace. And if we want to err on the side of grace, part of the way we err is we serve. He says we do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, everybody has something. Everybody has some skill set. Everybody has some gift they can use. And with that, we get to sweep. And you know, I am so appreciative of the redemption sweepers. Right? I really am. And we have Greg back here. He's making sure this works and we can all read it and see it and process it. All right, he's sweeping. Right? Sky's back there making the sounds good. He's sweeping. Bob's making sure that the people that can't be here today, they see this footage right now, sweeping. Trent was gone today, and so Stefan was up here sweeping, and Amy was up here sweeping, kind of filling in the gap for what he does, and back there with kids ministry and our safety team and our hospitality team. Like, donuts and coffee don't just happen by way of a backwards rapture, like, right? Like, there are sweepers, man, right? And they're coming in, and they're doing it, and so thank you. Man, if you're a sweeper at Redemption in any capacity, thank you. And if you're not a sweeper at Redemption, Grab a broom. Grab a broom. And, 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 and there's a blessing in that. And you connect relationally and everything else, and, and it's the way we're designed to serve one another, right? But we don't just serve within our context as a church, not just our own dojo, but we also think about our community. So the next statement we have is we do things for the good of the city, right? That is our heart. And of all of our statements, this is one of the oldest. Like, that was kind of born on day one and has continued this whole time because that is dear to us because we believe it's dear to God. Now, we know that the world as it is, man, we're just passing through, right? We get that. But I sometimes get concerned, too, that because we have that and we kind of, we kind of look and go, it's all going to fall apart, we almost feel like there isn't an importance to invest into the world around us. I, I don't think that's what Jesus calls us to, right? We can't just be like, ah, it's all going to hell in a handbasket, right? And I don't know why a handbasket. If it was going to hell, it's going to hell in a Chevy. We all know that. But, but aside from that, that's for Jesse, all right? So, but aside from that, the other thing we have to realize is that God wants us to make investment in this world. It's like the scouts. We want to leave it better than we found it because we want the aroma of Jesus to be in the environment that we inhabit. And one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah is kind of the, the source text for this idea. Right, so here's Israel. They have been pulled from their homeland, aggressively, you know, they're, they're conquered, they're taken away kind of in a type of slavery in essence, and they're forced into servitude in all these different ways. And you would think that in Babylon, what the whole mission prerogative would be is form an underground resistance to overthrow the Babylonians so we can get back home. But that's not what God tells them. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to the captives that he's exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. It's not build a resistance. Rather, he says, build homes. And plan to stay, plant gardens and eat the food that they produced. Marry and have children, find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren, multiply and do not dwindle. 
He says, And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where you were sent into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. See, I, I think this is helpful at a different level, too. Right? When it says your city, as a church, we represent many cities. Monroe, Duval, Carnation, Woodenville, Redmond, Sultan. There's people that watch online from other parts of the country and they consider us their church. Wherever you live is what it is. What our attitude should be to our community and our region is, man, I want its welfare, I want its good, I'm praying for it to thrive. Can I tell you where this is valuable? It's easy, it's so easy right now for us to go, oh, but Seattle, the homeless, oh, it's terrible. And these stupid politicians run in that city, it's terrible. God's like, I didn't call you to gripe. I didn't call you to criticize. I called you to pray for, do good to, right? Seek to bless it while you're there, whatever your city is. And that should be more of our orientation. I mean, this is why I'm most excited about the hub personally and the hub 2.0, our whole facility down there. Because before COVID, man, we were doing all kinds of things. We had AA and NA and play days for the kids. And we opened up classes. We called them on-ramps for like parenting and financial kind of investment and, and, and education. And, and I mean, we just tried to do a lot of things for our city. We did the dog park. We, one of our regroups put in the water fountain at Judd Park, if you go to Judd Park. And we have a scholarship here at the high school for STEM. And that's our heart is to do good for the city. And it's the way we get to display grace and truth. That we take the truth so serious in our own lives that we live it out, and from that hopefully people are touched by the grace that we bring to the table. And I think, again, that is a great apologetic. I think that's the thing that will woo people more than anything else. Because right now people are a little not certain about Christianity, and Christians are not so sure about what we represent, what we want to do, and this is a way we get to model it. And we say, we're going to model it to everybody. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what, how you see the world, what you do, how you live. We're looking at all of the people over here that were called to love and we go, you all bear the image of God. And on the final exam, Jesus is going to ask you, did you do it to the least of these? Because if you did, you did it to me. And if he didn't do it to the least of these, you were blowing me off. And we take that seriously. So we're like, man, we're going to love our city. We're going to err on the side of grace, right? We're going to be coupled together as a community of faith, but we are always trying to figure out who is also meant to be a part of this community. And it's that final statement that is important to us. We ask, who can I invite? Who can I invite? That might be into your own sphere of influence. Invite them to an event. Invite them into one of our on-ramp classes that will probably start here in January with financial peace. I think that's what we're going to try to do. Um, invite to church. Right? Invite into your friend group, maybe of other Christians, whatever it is, but who can I invite? There's this great scene in John chapter 4. Jesus goes into this region. There's this woman at the well, and he begins to interact with her. And, and in this interaction, it's cool because he meets a woman with her life in a mess. But he doesn't condemn her for the mess, he talks to her about the mess. But he does it in such a way that she doesn't feel threatened or judged. There's something about her that's like, man, I, I want to know more. I, there's something about this guy that I, I, I'm curious about. It's like he's giving her a level of dignity and her brokenness, and he's befriending her, and then he starts to talk to her about, hey, there's going to be this whole new way that you can worship. You don't have to go here. You don't have to go there. You're going to worship in this particular space wherever you stand in spirit and in truth. And so she's just mesmerized. And so from this, she darts back into town. The well appears to be out of town a little bit, so she goes back into town. 
It says, the woman left her water jar and went away and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. But there was something in his tone where she didn't say, and what a jerk, right? There was something in his tone that she's like, man, can this be the Christ? And so everybody who heard her went out of town and they came to see him. And notice, she doesn't use a big lecture. She doesn't have this awesome apologetics argument. She doesn't fine-tune all of the stuff she could say. She just says, there's a guy that changed me. Come and check it out. It's just an invitation. She's not trying to convert her town. She's just trying to clarify for her town how she has been compelled to this man. And that's another fun fact. I don't think we get to convert anybody. God converts people all the time. That's his jam. But our jam is to be compelling to be christ-like to be a light in darkness where people man i see something i I want that and then we're to be inviting people to what it is we are compelled by and so she invites come and see so this is many samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony and so when the samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word the thing I always try to remember is you never know what God's doing in the lives of people, right? The person you think might be the most closed off might be the most open. But the key for us is always to be an inviting people who want to be inviting people to an inviting place. And that's why these principles are then so important to us, right? Where we go, man, we're, we're going to seek to be like Jesus and we're going to err on the side of grace and we're going to take the Bible seriously and we're going to remember that life is best lived with others and we're going to do things for the good of the city and, and we're going to do all of this saying, who can I invite? Like all these things are going to be so important because at the core of what we're really trying to identify there is what we know, what we believe, and what we want to live for is life is better with Jesus. Now if you would just go ahead and bow your heads right now and close your eyes. I know that was a long one, but hopefully it was a fruitful one. And in particular, I don't know if people may be in this room this morning or people that may be watching and you've heard all of that and you go, that resonates with me. There's something in that where I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to Jesus. Uh, This portrait that's been painted, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a piece of the puzzle system here, you know? Well, well, for you, that's that's a prayer way where you say, Jesus, I know I've gone my own way, done my own thing, I've been living my own life, I have not put you in the equation. In other words, the Bible calls that sin. It says, I've crossed the line, missed the mark. And Jesus, I confess, I've been doing that. I've been, I've been in sin. I've been against your ways. But I want to be with you and in your ways. I believe you died for me, rose for me, and give me life in you. If you make that your prayer with your words, He knows your heart, he hears you, and he receives you. And if you make that your prayer today, we want to know on our app is a tile that says, hey, I decided to follow Jesus. Let us know you prayed that prayer. We want to know. We want to also give you the welcome hand and give you some encouragement and direction because it's a big step, and it's a big step. We would love to know that you took. Jesus, I thank you for the heart you've given to this body of people. I thank you for how often I see it in action with people. And I pray that we will be passionate to be faithful, motivated by grace and truth, living truth in our own life, exuding grace to others so that they may be touched by your grace, motivated by your grace, and see others invited into your grace as well. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and your love toward us in your name. Amen.